Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles. And this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest military and diplomatic updates from Ukraine. Look at life in Russia as repression increases and violence breaks out as former fighters return home. And we discuss the issue of landmines and demining across Ukraine. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday. The 28th of April, one year and 63 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our Associate Editor for Defence, Dominic Nichols, Russia correspondent Natalia Vasilyeva, and former tank commander and telegraph columnist Hamish de Breton-Gordon. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, hi David, hi everybody. So the big news overnight was there was another wave of missile strikes across Ukraine, at least 17 people dead so far, uh, according to reports. Many, many injuries as well. Fairly fairly wide-ranging, the attacks, a big arc across across U- Ukraine, mainly, mainly sort of down the centre, if you like. So from Kiev up into the north, um, and then down through around, around Dnipro and, and elsewhere. I'll talk about those in a minute. Officials in Kiev said 11 cruise missiles and two drones have been destroyed by air defence over the city, and it has been 51 days since the, since the city was last hit by a missile strike. In the central city of Dnipro, a young young woman, a three-year-old child, had been killed, according to the, the mayor. And in the city of Uman, which is right in the middle of the country, get Ukraine, stick a pin right in the middle, that's Uman. An apartment building was was hit and set ablaze. Three, at least three killed, eight injured there. The head of the local military administration said, you'll see the pictures on our website and across social media, Explosions and other strikes also in the in the early hours. So Dnipro, Kremenchuk, these these cities on the river, about 200 k's east of Uman, and then the town city of Poltava, which is another 80 k's northeast of Kremenchuk, and that's roughly halfway to to Kharkiv. So we're up in the in the sort of centre and the northeast of the country here. Mykolaiv in the south was also hit. Russia said, for what it's worth, that they were striking Ukrainian army reserve units and hit all designated targets with high-precision strikes. I mean, God, they're just, just such unpleasant people. The foreign minister, Ukraine's foreign minister, Dmitry Kaleba, he, he said in a tweet, missile strikes killing innocent Ukrainians in their sleep, including a two-year-old child, is Russia's response to all peace initiatives. 
The way to peace is to kick Russia out of Ukraine. The way to peace is to arm Ukraine with F-16s and protect children from Russian terror. And then also commenting this morning, Alexei Reznikov, who's Ukraine's defence minister, he said that the country is wrapping up preparations for the anticipated counteroffensive and, broadly speaking, ready to go for the for the offensive. He Speaking in Kyiv, he said preparations are coming to an end. In addition to being provided a weapon, it must be mastered. I mean, we've got to do the training. Equipment has been promised, prepared and partially delivered. In a global sense, we're ready. As soon as there is, God's will, the weather and a decision by commanders, we will do it. So fairly, you know, unequivocal comments there. I mean, I, I pause because only yesterday he was talking about comments about the, the upcoming well, anticipated counteroffensive. He said these, the comments have been overheated. So yesterday he said it's definitely overheated. Everybody wants their victory. This is not a sprint distance. This is not a 100 metre, not a 60 metre or a 30 metre. When I realised that this is not a sprint but, but a marathon, then I said to myself, wait, in order to run the last 195 metres of, of the marathon distance, you need to hold on for 42 kilometres before that. So getting a bit technical with the numbers there, Alexei, but the point he was making yesterday was that was talk about the the counteroffensive was was perhaps getting a bit ahead of itself. And today, 180 degrees separate, saying they're, they're ready to go. I mean, you know, this, might be, this might be a super double bluff. It might be that they are ready to go. It might be that they they you know not not quite there yet, but all of it is going to mess with Russian minds, which is which is partly or almost possibly almost the, the only reason for doing it, because planners now, even if they're saying, well, we'll work to our own agenda, we'll work to our own timings, we'll prepare ourselves accordingly, of course messages like this is going to impact them. So for that end, I think it's it's worth it's worth saying. And just one last point. Again, don't don't really like parroting these people, but if it if it shows how ridiculous they are, then so be it. Russia's Defence Minister Sergei Shoigu, he's in New Delhi. There's a, a conference there of the Shanghai Cooperation Organisation, a kind of a sort of security club of um, Asian and Russian states. So he said he's saying this morning that the US and its allies wish to inflict a strategic defeat of Russia and create a threat to China. I mean, I'll go with the first one. Not so sure about the second. He said, Today, Washington and its allies are implementing their strategic plan, which consists of provoking other countries into military confrontation with undesirable states, in the first instance with Russia and China. I mean, it's just, it, this is classic Russian para- mirroring, doing, saying others are doing what you are doing, to, just to um, throw the element of doubt in there, but also just to muddy the, the intellectual landscape. He went on, a vivid confirmation of such a criminal policy is in the conflict in Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, it's just talking. I'm not going to say the rest. It's just talking absolute nonsense. But, you know, this stuff lands well in many areas around the around the world. Some big, big players, China, Brazil, much of the global south. You know, they, they are they are receptive to some of these ideas, which is why he says it. And it just just frames it as. Well, if not a morally neutral way, he tries to frame it that, that they are the they are the put upon that it's nasty old NATO and US and anyone else us Ukraine who are um, who are the aggressors here. But I won't I won't read any more of his nonsense, and I'll take a pause there. 
Thanks, Tom. And just to say to our listeners, if you haven't already heard, on Tuesday, we did do a deep dive into South Asian perspectives on the war in Ukraine with our colleague Joe Wallen and his colleague Tushar Shetty from the Beyond the Indus podcast. So do listen to Tuesday's episode if you want to hear a little bit more about that from the people who who know. Don, we'll come back to you for diplomatic updates. Uh, But first, can I go to Natalia Vasilyeva, Natalia, our Russia correspondent. You've, You've been writing up a couple of stories about events inside Russia recently that that are sort of that seem to be examples of, of of greater trends. First off, we've we've it's been out for a few days. There's a slick new recruitment advert for the Russian armed forces. Can you tell us about it? And do we have any sense of how people are reacting? How is it going down? Hi everyone. Yeah, I think it's something worth paying attention to because I thought this ad uh, marks something of a watershed moment for the recruitment in Russia, because if if our listeners have been following uh, this war from the start, we could remember that Vladimir Putin, when he first ordered troops into Ukraine, insisted that this war will be fought by professional soldiers, that civilians are not going to be involved. And for a very long time, pretty much for most of last year, at least until the September partial mobilization, the Kremlin propaganda insisted that the army is doing all right, that the army army can do it on its own. And obviously with the mountain losses, we see that there is a need for more manpower. There have been different attempts of recruitment. Um, There was the partial mobilization. There was a drive among prisoners in Russian prisoners, in Russian prisons by the Wagner mercenary group you know, just on, on cities in Moscow and elsewhere, you could see portraits, uh, you could see posters sort of hailing the heroes of the war, as the Kremlin describes them, soldiers who were killed in Ukraine. But just uh, last week was basically the first time when we started seeing ads on state TV occupying very prominent place, quite an, quite a, an advertising campaign from the defense ministry encouraging Russian men to sign up. So there's this one particular ad that really caught my eye. It sort of draws on the on the idea that has been promoted by Russian state television before that there are lots of men in the country in in, in Russia who are engaged in uh, menial jobs, who are engaged in jobs that basically don't matter, and those men are wasting their life away. So we saw so in that ads we can see three characters. One is a personal trainer. Another is a security guard at the supermarket, and the third one is a taxi driver. It's very well done, very well produced in terms of cinematography, drama, I would say. And you can see those three men listlessly performing their day jobs while they're dreaming of bigger ideas. And um, there are various captions that go on with, with the ad. One of them says, is this the kind of a defender you dreamt of becoming? This refers to a security guard who is guarding a vegetable aisle instead of, I don't know, apparently attacking Ukrainians on their own soil. There's another one about taxi driver when when he's being mocked for receiving a tip for the ride. And um, he's been reminded of a journey, of a life journey. And the questions are asked, "Is is this how your life journey is going? So yeah, it basically shows that the defense ministry is desperate, and it's and it needs to use all of the all of the resources at its disposal disposal to to recruit troops. At the same time, they're not making secret of the main incentives that the, the incentive they've been trying to use to um, lure people into Ukraine, which is an enviable salary of an equivalent of two thousand pounds a month. 
which is quite a lot for Russian provinces. It might not be a lot for Moscow, for the biggest cities, but it's quite a lot, especially for men from rural areas. So, yeah, there's this one. And Natalia, just very quickly, the Ukrainian activists did their own edit of this of this advert. What did they do? Yeah, um, as, as we have seen throughout the war, Ukraine's sort of cyber troops have been really good at producing sort of counting Russian propaganda in, in different ways. So this time Ukrainian activists edited that same advert and basically played it in reverse order, showing how soldiers are returning to their lives as personal trainers, taxi drivers and security guard. Because in this ad you see those taxi, you see that taxi driver turning into soldier. So because of the reverse order, you see how um, you know what what it's like and what happens when when you return to your to your ordinary life and how frustrated you appear to be. And this ad, this mock ad, runs under the slogan "You are human, so be one." Compared to the original slogan "You're a man, just do it," something like that. Turning from troop recruitment to a slightly different story, we've heard a couple of stories over the past few months of what happened to the former Russian soldiers, the convicted criminals who joined the Wagner Group, who'd gone to Ukraine and then been freed after after doing their sort of their, their, their six months or whatever the term was. Often their return to, to their communities has not gone well. Can you tell us what happened in South Ossetia? Yeah, this is actually a quite quite a worrying trend and something that prisoner rights activists have been talking for a very long time. Uh, because when Wagner started recruiting prisoners sometime last summer, I mean, people thought of the originally thought of the short-term impact, but like how are those people are going to do on the battlefield. But there was very little thought to the fact what's going to happen to them when they are returning home, because those soldiers were recruited on a promise of a pardon. And that's true that a lot of them died. I need to look up, but I think it's something like a third of the entire prisoner force has been either killed or seriously injured so they're out of action but a lot of men are beginning to to come back to their communities because they signed six months contracts and those six months have inspired expired uh, probably the most uh, the most tragic the most widely covered story in recent weeks happened in uh, South Ossetia, which is a breakaway uh, region of Georgia uh, which has been under de facto Russian control since 2008. And uh, there was a man who recruited to serve with Wagner from South Ossetia. He went there. Uh, he was he was a prisoner. Apparently, he was convicted in 2014. He was convicted. I'm not sure I remember something. It was a lengthy, lengthy, lengthy prison sentence for murder. So he joined Wagner, went to serve in Ukraine, came back. And... Um, Something like within a month of his return to his native South Ossetia, he was caught on CCTV approaching a man on the street and stabbing him. And uh, the victim was actually quite, quite well known. He was a local man known for his um, eccentricities, such as dancing in the street or um, chatting up with, with, with strangers. There were reports that he was intellectually disabled. We don't have any other proof for that. His official con- condition was not officially reported. Local politicians have affectionately described him as a holy fool, uh, drawing on a traditional phrase that sort of tradition goes back to the Orthodox tradition of of people who these days you would describe people with intellectual disabilities who were who were very much respected in, in the in the c- community, even though they 
according to societal expectations, behaved strangely. So this man was apparently very much loved. Attributes came from all sides, uh, including a former president who said that he used to see him in the street. He used to give him high fives. They always chatted. He was a, quote, good-natured, harmless guy whom everyone loved like their own family. And local authorities treated this murder as a high-profile case. The suspect, identified as Georgi Shiukayev, was quickly found and detained and is now being prosecuted for murder. At the same time, Evgeny Pigozhin, the boss of Wagner, was quite hesitant about confirming the incident, saying that he needs to investigate whom and for what the former Wagner fighter might have killed in South Ossetia. But that's not the first case like that that we've heard about. There was another reported murder, quite a heartbreaking one, when a 28-year-old former Wagner fighter who had quite a reputation in his native village, who was sentenced to 14 years for killing and robbing a woman. He came back to his home village, and within weeks of his arrival, uh, he reportedly killed an 18-85-year-old woman, despite the fact that locals from the very start, as soon as the men arrived, they raised the alarm. There was even a public meeting. There's a YouTube video of that public meeting between the villagers and police officials who were saying we're just scared of walking the streets with a man like that walking around. So basically, that's that's the we're seeing long lasting consequences of, of the Wagner drive that started many months ago. But um, this is what it came to in provincial Russia. Natalia, thank you. Would you talk us through one final story, which I think, again, and then I'd love to get your thoughts on taking all of these stories together. What what do you make of the state of Russian society at the moment, more than a year into the full-scale invasion? But first, tell us a little bit about the pensioner who's been arrested for calling Volodymyr Zelensky handsome. Yeah, we've been, in recent months, we've been seeing and covering a lot of stories of the government using its worst censorship law to go after activists. It started with uh, the Kremlin going after popular politicians, activists, somebody with a name, somebody who would be recognizable. And at this point, we see that prosecutors and police are basically going after random people, A, with the goal of sowing fear and showing to others that you should not be expressing opposition to the war, even in private conversation. It's not even about protesting, but even talking about and B, police and prosecutors are obviously sort of fulfilling their quota, quotas for solving crimes because these are crimes that are easy to solve. And one of the most remarkable cases that I've heard about is um, was reported by Russian human rights group Memorial that described a recent court case against a pensioner who was having a Christmas New Year break at a holiday resort in Russian Caucasus and apparently was careless enough to touch upon the subject of Ukraine at a dinner table with other holiday resorts residents. And apparently someone snitched on her and wrote several complaints just for the fact that she called Vladimir Zelensky handsome, a handsome and smart man. Again, it just goes to show that, you know, even a couple of years ago, you would think this, this case would be too ridiculous for a Russian court to deal with. But the woman was detained at the holiday resort. She was questioned and the criminal, the not the criminal, but the administrative case was raised. So it's not criminal charges yet. But at the end of the day, there was a court hearing in Moscow earlier this month. And um, 
she was giving quite a hefty fine and the hearing was even her held in her absence as she was too sick to be there. Thanks, Natalia. And so just before we go back to Dom, can I ask, just taking all of these stories together, I mean, we wanted to talk about them because they're specific examples of, of broader trends. What's your take or understanding of, of the state of Russian society right now in, in April 2023? Mm. Well, just before the war and in the initial weeks of the war, we could see that the Kremlin made it impossible, incredibly dangerous to protest, to protest any of its actions, including the war, that like a political, basically a, a political action was outlawed. So in the in the past 12 months, we've seen that trend transforming to the Kremlin's opposition to, um, to the very thoughts of opposing the government. It's no longer about taking to the streets and um, standing there on the square with a, a poster. It's about the fact that even conversation about it, even, you know, sort of words heard in private or like semi-private locations uh, are, are not okay anymore, which basically shows that Russia, Russia is moving towards a totalitarian regime, as, as one might have predicted earlier. Thank you very much for for those stories and for summing it up like that, Natalia. That was really interesting and it's really good to, to hear you again. Dom Nichols, before we go to Hamish de Bretton Gordon, can I come to you, Dom, and just ask for some diplomatic updates that have been taking place over the past day? Yeah, a couple of quick points to, to mention here. So Pope Francis is in Hungary, arrived there this morning, start of a three-day visit. He's going to meet... The president, President Novak and Prime Minister Viktor Orban, then he's giving a big speech this afternoon to Hungarian diplomats on the theme of of his vision for the future of Europe. He's also going to meet some of the two and a half million Ukrainian refugees who are in in Hungary. Vatican spokesman Matteo Bruni said of the trip, it's difficult not to think about the European Union and all of Europe. Fair enough. And so he noted the the Pope's passion for Europe, or sorry, the the passion for Europe had, had perhaps faded over the years. And the Pope Francis is aiming to revive the Europe of peoples with its own history and responsibility and the commitment to global peace. Right, fine. OK, we'll have a look at that when he comes out. On the grain deal. So Moscow, guess what? OK, May, May the 18th is the next the next date for the grain deal to be to, to be renegotiated. So the UN mandated grain deal to get grain out of, out of Ukraine. As we get closer to the, the date of each of these renewals, of course, there's always a, a grumble from, from Moscow. So here's the first one in this one. They say the outlook for the deal is not very good. Oof, oh, dear. Going on about how certain conditions relating to their own agricultural and fertiliser exports were not fulfilled. I mean, they do this. This is just posturing ahead of trying, trying, just trying to get any any angle they can. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, he has set out proposals for a way forward aimed at the improvement, extension and expansion of the agreement. He said that in a letter to Putin. Uh, yeah, there'll be more of this up to up to the 18th and then it will happen as it's happened on, on the other the other occasions. But of course, Moscow will try and try and get whatever they can out of it. And then the presidents of Slovakia and the Czech Republic, Czechia, have been um, in Ukraine. They've arrived in Ukraine this morning to show solidarity with the region and say uh, they've, they've put out a joint tweet saying that they, they share parts of common history and common future. So they're, um, they're, they are there. And then finally, Ukraine, this has just now in the last uh, hour reports, Ukraine has, says it has received all 19 Caesar self-propelled howitzers promised by Denmark. So these are long-range precision pieces of equipment. I think France have pledged 12 as well. I'm not sure how many of those are are in country, but uh, but yes, these are these are very good self-propelled 
artillery guns. Uh, so yes, and uh, the, they report that they are already in action. That's the diplomatic update. Thank you very much, Dom. Hamish de Breton Gordon, could I just get your thoughts on uh, Alexei Reznikov's remarks? I mean, Dom mentioned how yesterday he'd said maybe, you know, sort of thoughts about the counteroffensive, the anticipated counteroffensive were overheated. And then today he's saying Ukraine is ready. What do you make of this? Good afternoon, everybody. And great to be on the pod again. Well, I think it's a really challenging time at the moment. And we've discussed hitherto about what we call OPSEC, operational security. And there are so many people commentating on it. And I think there is a concern that you know, the, the element of surprise, which is absolutely fundamental to a counteroffensive like this, is, is going to be lost if, if too many people are discussing how it's going to happen and all the rest of it. I think you know, the Ukrainians are, are really canny as well. And some of their other offensives earlier on in the war have been you know, absolutely highlighted and fingerprint by their, by, by their guile and by their sort of the, the way that they've approached it, the indirect approach, as, as we'd call it in the military, doing something that the enemy doesn't expect you to do. And, and I think that is you know, very much the back of the Ukrainians' minds at the moment, the MOD and the commanders, that um, giving lots, ha- lot is happening in the background all over the place, really to give the Russians lots and lots of things to think about. And we've seen how static and, you know, the Russians are not agile. So if Ukraine can push them in the wrong direction, then the offensive will be more successful. And I, I equate it um, very much to to actually Desert Storm, which I was part of back in 91. I think it's a similar sort of environment hits. Now, we in those days really have the element of surprise. It was just overwhelming power, but against actually similar vehicles. So I I think at the moment there is a lot of sort of shadow boxing going on and the Ukrainians are, they, they want to attack at a time and a place of their choosing. And I think all this is part of the, the build up uh, to that. Uh, really not to give any clues of what they're going to do or when they're going to do it. So I think we're going to see a lot more of this sort of thing over the next few days and weeks. No, that's fascinating. Thank you, Hamish. I know you wanted to talk a little bit about demining and some of the work being done in Ukraine there. What, what have you been reading? Yeah, a- a- absolutely. Um, I hope it hasn't been missed by by our listeners. There was a very significant report produced yesterday by Global Sec, who are a global think tank, Really, they've done a lot of research into into mines and mining. And, and I suppose not unsurprisingly, there are a lot of mines in Ukraine. This report says this is now the most contaminated country in the world with mines, far more so than Afghanistan or Syria. And this is a huge concern. Basically, we have anti-tank mines, which are big and blow up tanks, but but you need a significant weight on them to set them off. So so children and people running around are not going to set them off. The real danger and the real nasty piece and what this report highlights is what we call anti-personnel mines. These are things about the size of eggs made to look like stones or leaves. So very difficult, you know, just to pick up. But particularly in places like Kherson and Kharkiv, where the Russians have been put out of, pushed out of, they have left thousands of these things all over the place. The report says they've also booby-trapped and double and triple booby-trapped dead bodies, dead animals, and a whole host of places. So 
as people go back into these areas, they're then uh, susceptible to injury or death that way. Apparently, they've also heavily mined the agricultural areas. Now, we're coming into a time and you know, with a farming background, I know this is a time we're planting all our crops so we get a good harvest. So again, that is really hampering the Ukrainian farmers being able to get back into those fields to deal with those. Now, anti-personnel mines, you know, are banned. There is a UN declaration for the prohibition of the use of anti-personnel mines, the Ottawa Protocol, I think it was called, produced in the 90s, signed by most countries in the world, except this axis of evil, very much led by Russia, hasn't signed it. Ukraine has signed it. So not only post-conflict, there is going to be a massive task to clear these mines. But at the moment, as fighting is still going on, and of course 18% or so of the country is still occupied by the Russians, there is a very great danger. Now, these things are indiscriminate, and it is more likely that civilians, you know, particularly children running around who are not educated in these things, they again become the casualties. And I've seen that myself in places like Syria and Afghanistan. I know that many people have heard of the Halo Trust, run by an ex-military chum of mine, James Cowan. They've done amazing work all over the world. I believe they are already in Ukraine looking at this, but this is a dreadful legacy. And to me, is a is a another war crime that uh, the International Criminal Court need to put on Putin's indictment for the use of these dreadful weapons. So that is something that unfortunately is going to be a le- legacy for some time because even now people are still clearing mines in Bosnia from you know 20 odd years ago. Thank you Hamish. I mean I mean just to chip in very briefly when we did the when I did the hostile environment training that you know as a journalist you have to do before going to a war zone. I did it before going to Ukraine last summer. And I do remember, and you sort of get talked through lots of different weapons, how they're used, what you need to do to stay safe, all that kind of thing. And I remember being really struck by just how, in, in, in all the sort of paraphernalia of things that can kill you, just how just how horrible mines were. And partly for that, Hamish, as you say, that they, they, they linger and they can still kill you. They can still you know, rip apart families years after they've, they've been laid. So well, thank you very much for that, Hamish. Um, Dom, do you have any comments on that or shall we, go, shall we stay with Hamish? Well, the only comment I'd add is that a lot of these anti-personnel mines are, um, they have very low metal content. So they, they are difficult to pick up with, with metal detectors, as we found in Afghanistan. But also they are, they're, they're very light. So when we found in Bosnia, and I think the same thing's happened here across Afghanistan, when fields flood in, in the sort of winter and, and in the, the rainy, rainy seasons, they can move. They, they just get carried on the, uh, carried on the, on the flood water. And so even if, you you look at a piece of ground and you think, you know, from a soldier's perspective, that has probably been mined. That's a that's a route the enemy is probably going to have mined, or you've seen them do it. You you can't be guaranteed that the the, the field over there is completely free of mines because because like I say, the, the the flood water could have could have moved them. And so the, these things, as Hamish says, there are thousands of them. They they last decades after after conflict. They are um, they can look quite attractive. They look like small toys. Some of them. So so kids. Yeah, for, still the legacy of these things, maiming and, and killing children who pick them up, thinking they're quite quite exotic items. I mean, they're, they're just they're just horrific, and they're going to they're going to be around for decades. That's why, you know, as I said, James Cowan and the Halo Trust do a fantastic job, and others, of course. Thanks, Tom. Just going back to you, Hamish. You wanted to talk about mines. Are there any other updates from your side for us? 
Well, yeah, so, something I'm j- just writing up at the moment is corruption in the in Russia and the Russian military. And James Kilner wrote a piece today about the Russian commander arrested for selling tank engines, Colonel Alexander Desnyov, accused of selling T-90 engines on the black market. I, th- I think everybody knows that corruption is sort of endemic, you know, throughout the Russian military and, and probably throughout the Kremlin. It, it sort of strikes me that if the Russians have lost 2,000 tanks already, you, you know, it, we know that the maintenance and everything else is desperately poor, you know, and, and perhaps you've got these 290 tanks, they are static pillboxes because they don't have any engines. I mean, it just seems amazing. I, I do remember as a young tank commander sat on the inner German border facing off the Russians back in the Cold War in the sort of 80s and 90s, we had stories of Russian tank soldiers drinking coolant for its um, intoxicating capabilities and frogging their fuel to get a few rubles to buy food. So again, it, it, it's it's sort of not wholly surprising. But I, it's that the, when it comes to Russian military procurement, you know, the sort of corruption starts at the absolute top. You know, Putin's mates and oligarchs are getting contracts for bits of kit we know that sort of russian body armor doesn't really work somebody's bought that and and a whole host of other things and um it's yeah desperately sad i think for the russian people you know not only are are there young men being slaughtered in their thousands but you know so much of their economy trillions of rubles has been siphoned off for the for the favored few and and even far down the food chain you know people are are just you know, nicking stuff and selling it. And it just, you know, the, it, it just shows to me the whole lack of the moral component w- within Russian forces. So, yeah, I, th- I think that is not surprising, but, but again, a desperately sad reflection on the state of the Russian military. Thanks, Hamish. I know Dom has a couple of questions. And Dom, we were chatting about this beforehand, and it's, it's a bit too military for me. So I'll just hand over to you now. Righto. Hey, it was just a couple, if, if I may, one, one sort of Ukraine specific and then one more broadly. A question from, from Melanie and, and some others about what the war looks like on a day-to-day basis for, for soldiers, especially the, the, this, this war with widespread use of information operations, smartphones, drones, so on and so forth. Yeah, we've, we've not yet seen, we've seen some of the sort of first-hand footage, but there's you know, just to get an idea of what the what the day-to-day experience might be like. I mean, for my part, I would I would say that that most of most operational time is is a lot of boredom punctuated by short moments of intense, you know, terror basically. But being being out there at, at, on operations is is an exhausting activity because of the, the tension. You're generally sleep deprived. The, the need to stay constantly alert. You're just you're just exhausted, even if you're not. If you're not fighting, but it plays on your mind and, and your body. It's not the most comfortable place. You're not getting. We used to say, I think this was right, wasn't it? Hamish used to say, four, your minimum four hours sleep a night, horizontal, warm and comfortable. That's that's what you need to be. And of course, you don't get that really in a in a trench. So yeah, it just it just wears you down. But Hamish, I'd be interested in your your view on what you think the war would look like for a, for a soldier on a on a daily basis out there in the front lines at Bakhmut, for example. Dom, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, as you know, it's quite difficult to explain to people who haven't been in combat that that sort of feeling of you know, every minute you're awake, you're you're alert and you're you're working, you know, almost at capacity. But actually, generally, 
the 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 excitement uh, I can't agree with you is over very short periods. So you know you're on duty for twenty hours, but you might actually only be in action, you know, for for a few minutes or so. But you've got to be at the top of your game all the time, and that is incredibly tiring. I, I remember in the first Gulf War, you know, we we attacked and actually we we went for four days with no sleep, and I can still remember how unbelievably unpleasant that was uh, and when things did stop on that sort of fourth day yeah everybody just literally passed out for about 12 hours but it's that you know that living you do get used to it and i i i'd be very interested in your view tom i mean the first time i was in contact in the first gulf war that very first night and there was a lot of firing going on you you sort of think that every shell bullet is coming towards you and i remember and my driver got really really hacked off with me because every two minutes i was telling him to go back forwards left and right because we thought these anti-tank weapons and everything else but but actually you quickly realize that 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 is not the case but again it's this sort of inoculation of combat so you do sort of get used to it but i think it's it is incredibly sapping and of course you know for 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 you and i who have spent our lives in tanks or, or helicopters, you know, it is slightly different. I mean, I always say I've never been really uncomfortable on a tank, but I have in a trench. But and I, and you know that hasn't been you know my my great experience. So those people in Bakhmut who are living in trenches and you you see the videos, they're up to their knees in mud, incredibly sapping and incredibly difficult. And the key thing why i am so confident that ukraine is going to prevail is what we call the moral component the ukrainians are fighting for their country you know they're fighting for rights they they have moral leaders and and hopefully they feel the push of the rest of us behind them whereas the russians as we hear it you know that their soldiers are being pushed to the front they have officers at the back who shoot them if they decide to to go back they're poorly trained they they've got poor equipment and they are dying in droves and that must be absolutely horrendous in fact you know it's no surprise that they're drinking the coolant and anything else they can get to try and clyde their minds but it is it, it's it's an incredibly challenging environment you do sort of get used to it but but the other thing, and, and hopefully the Ukrainian soldiers get a chance, you do at times need to decompress. You do need to get out of it and get yourself back together. And uh, just one final piece on this. I remember at the end of the first Gulf War, you know, we, we were out of the desert on a BA jumbo back in Germany, you know, within 24 hours. And, and I must say, I think we all thought we were completely shell-shocked. Now, we learned from that, and I think my, my last tour in Afghanistan, you know, we had four or five days in in the Middle East somewhere just to what we call decompress. So let's hope they're getting that, because to keep going back and doing it, you need to rebuild up your your banks of, of energy and fortitude and bravery, because I think, you know, the, the great Phil Marshall Slim in, in some of his writings about morale, you, you, you have a you have a sort of tank of of resilience and bravery and if you don't keep topping it up by getting out of it 
and and rebuilding it runs out so command of soldiers and looking after them is absolutely key and i'm convinced the ukrainians have got it and i'm as convinced i am that the russians haven't thanks hamish and um just one final one if i may yesterday i talked about this this new british german innovation for the next generation of uh, anti tank rounds uh, it's called eek the enhanced kinetic energy round and um and it had just broken so i so i introduced it but then i was I, I wonder if you could comment if you could talk to us a little bit about about tank barrels and how you know, munitions work and the difference between smooth bore and rifled barrels and what improvements can be made to these kinetic energy rounds and and just generally what's the, what is the benefit of having a, a joint initiative in this regard Yes, I, I think this is a really interesting set forward, and it's it's all around what, what's been called the Challenger Three, the new British tank. And it would be very cynical of me to say it would, would just be an upgraded Challenger Two, but I I I've been convinced by friends of ours in the know that you know it's a lot more than that. Interesting enough, I understand the turret of the Challenger Three is going to be very very similar to the Leopard Two, which which, which you know actually gives me hope that um that it'll be a really and i'm convinced it will be a really good vehicle really good tank when we come on to barrels the current british barrel on the challenger 2 and it was on the challenger 1 as well is a rifle barrel 120 millimeters the rifling is to allow accurate fire of rounds over a greater distance and predominantly it's the high explosive squash head round that you you don't talked about before fire up to 17 kilometers used to take out bank bunkers type of thing but also used against armored vehicles but but the high explosive squash head we now is not is much less effective against armored vehicles so i think we're we're happy to drop that the other thing for a rifle barrel is to fire smoke screen white phosphorus and you know i, I am very anti-white phosphorus i've investigated a number of it accidents in in syria and elsewhere where it's been used as an incendiary weapon so i'm delighted that we get rid of white phosphorus and actually as a smoke screen you know with modern thermal imaging sites it doesn't work anyway so when we go on to the smooth ball the the key thing with smooth ball is to fire kinetic energy rounds and again these are basically darts of either depleted uranium or tungsten and they work on a mass velocity equation. So so mass, which in old money is sort of weight with uh, density in there as well. And velocity, fire the thing as fast as you can. And the can- kinetic energy transfer when it hits the enemy tank is what allows it to penetrate through through the, 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 the steel. And the German, the German barrel, same one on the Abrahams M1, which is very much what the the Challenger three barrel is is going to be. I think they're too. They, they talk about this enhanced kinetic energy round. I understand it's. Understand the Brits want to weed us, wean ourselves off depleted uranium rounds. Only because I expect the Russians have made great play, and we've discussed this before. The Russians said this is a nuclear weapon. Britain is sending, which is absolute bunkum. But um, but we are where we are with that. So what what this round is trying to do is generate greater velocity with new propellants. So perhaps if they can get a tungsten dart flying at two thousand meters per second, that has greater penetration. 
I mean, inter- a lot of talk in the past has been about electronic rail guns on tanks, where basically you use an electric field to generate that velocity. Now, I don't think um, we're quite there yet. I think the other thing to point out here, this is a single piece round. The ammunition in the Challenger 2 basically is is three piece. It has a it has the projectile, the the fin dart on one end. It has the bag charge with explosive in it. It has a thing called a vent tube to set it off. Now, there are advantages and disadvantages with both. The advantage of a, a of two piece or three piece ammunition is you can store more of it in a tank. So a Challenger 2 will take 52 rounds. The advantage with one piece ammunition is in theory you can load it more quickly, but a Leopard 2 will only take 42 rounds and one assumes that's going to be the same with a Challenger. And I'm sure, Dom, you have had loaders like I have who have said, yeah, we can load far more rounds, far more quickly with two piece than, than either a one piece round or an auto loader. And my great chum and loader, a chap called Wolfie McKendrick, reckon he could get four in the air in one time. I didn't believe him then and I still don't believe him now. So I think it's um, uh, it is a positive start to do it together. The Germans are very, very expert in a lot of things tank-wise, and I think we, the Brits, are very expert in in munitions. So hopefully, the combination of the two will produce a really effective tank and a really effective tank round that will be able to overmatch anything our enemies have. I mean, the final thing I'd say on this is. You know, what we've seen in Ukraine, um, I, I think what we've known anyway, the Russian tanks have never majored on on protection, on the armor that they have. And the fact that we've seen T-72s and T-80s taken out relatively easy with anti-tank weapons and also with direct fire is is probably heartening. And I think, you know, the, when the Challenger 2s and Leopard 2s get out there, they, they will suck up a lot more punishment than than the T-72s. The final thing to say about Smoothmore barrels is you can also fire anti-tank guided weapons through them. I think the Leopard fires the Israeli lat through it. So anti-tank guided weapons, much greater distance, less of a punch at the end, but again, it gives you flexibility. So it'd be interesting to see how it develops. Thank you very much for that, Hamish. It's fascinating to hear your and Dom's insights there. We are running out of time, sadly. So can we go to our final thoughts? Uh, Dom Nichols, why don't you start? Sure, thanks. Well, I've just noted that Moscow said that the so the Victory Day Parade, their Victory Day Parade comes up each year, May the 9th. We covered it last year live at the Telegraph. And um, so they're talking about how this year they're going to have units that fought in Ukraine represented on, on the parade. Fine. But I just it just got me thinking that you know, if you've got Alexei Reznikov, Ukraine's defence minister, saying they are they're ready to go and they're just waiting for the weather and and what have you. I mean, we've we've discussed before. We will do again about what success may or may not look like for this counteroffensive, and we need, and and how it's it's sometimes unhelpful to frame it as well. If they don't take this amount of ground or if they lose that many people, it's not a success. I mean, the the big thing that it will do is will show their resolve, and that's what it has to do. Um, and and you know they're showing it every day. But I just wonder if, if to underline that resolve and a big sort of you know, FU to Putin, I would love it if they launched their counteroffensive on May the 9th. Thanks, Tom. Hamish to Breton Gordon. Yes, yeah, so f- final thoughts. I, the, the guns have gone silent behind me on Salisbury Plain, which makes me think that, uh, you know, all the 
heavy artillery training and everything else has gone and the tank firing to my south has also gone quiet so preparations are on their way and and going to dom's point about what success looks like you know we know the russian plan is to draw this out as long as possible so that you know some of the the countries including our own who have elections next year start to lose heart i mean i absolutely think that we must not do it and i think the ukrainians are going to launch at a time and place of their choosing and it will take us all by surprise i expect and probably take the russians even more by surprise i hope Thank you very much, Dom and Hamish, for your time. Uh, Natalia Vasileva, would you like the very final thoughts? Yeah, I would actually latch on Dom's remarks about Victory Day, but in in a different context. As we know, the Kremlin loves anniversaries and red-letter dates. So obviously it's an important day for Putin to sort of to have something to show to the Russian people, maybe try to explain where this is always going. So he has been awfully silent in recent weeks. Obviously, the winter offensive that Russia may have planned or hoped for failed. So it would definitely be a moment to see, to, to, to watch for any signs of where, where, the Russian, where the Russian war is going. What, what do they have in mind? Do they want to press forward? Do they think they can press forward? So I would say May, May the 9th, the Russian Victory Day, will be this, this, this kind of day to see if he has something to announce or... Um, if he will be calling for peace talks, as he has been doing quite unsuccessfully, obviously, because in his idea, peace talks means a surrender of Ukraine, essentially. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.com co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest or sign up to Dispatches our Ukraine newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox we also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day including insights from regular contributors to this podcast you can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter spaces follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it to our listeners on YouTube please note that due to issues beyond our control there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter you can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Rachel Duffy.